Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time joining us, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. And today we are in week four of this series that we've been calling BC. Where over the next couple of weeks and in the weeks prior, we have been talking about what happened before it all happened. Meaning, what happened those thousands of years before Jesus Christ stepped on the scene? We've been diving into the Old Testament, and we've been taking a look at some key figures, and we're trying to find out what their stories are and how their stories impact and, and perhaps influence our own stories. So this week, um, this week turned out slightly different than I had planned. See, my original goal when I kind of laid out this series and who I wanted to talk about and events that I wanted to discuss, I originally wanted to talk to you about a guy named Joshua. Now, Joshua is a very famous person from the Old Testament. He was a a great general. Um, Interestingly enough, Jesus was named after Joshua. Uh, Of course, you know, Jesus is the anglicized version of the name, but Jesus would have been called Yeshua, which is Joshua. And I think that name Joshua actually led to some of the confusion that the Jewish people at the time had when it came to Jesus because They looked at him as being the Messiah, and yet your name is Joshua, so does that mean you're going to be some kind of conquering military general that will throw out Rome? Well, that didn't happen. But the reason I wanted to talk to you about Joshua is he was involved in perhaps what is known as the the greatest battle in all of Scripture. This battle, this battle of Jericho, falls into what I kind of like to call the Sunday School Hall of Fame. If you grew up going to Sunday school, if you spend any kind of time in kids programming, you definitely learned about the Battle of Jericho. It's It's just a great story. So this week as I spend time researching Jericho and researching Joshua, I realize something. I realize that there's another character in this story, a supporting role, if you will, that plays an integral role in this spectacular event. And this woman's story is the real story that I think we need to focus on this week. Why? Because her story is our story. So today what I want to do is I want to introduce you to Joshua and Rahab, two people who are, whose lives um, couldn't be more different. Who, comes fr- who come from different cultures, uh, different countries, different values, who have different gods. And one day, these two people, their lives intersect and set the stage for God to do something amazing. So let me kind of set the scene for us today. Last week, if you were with us, if, if you joined us, if you had a chance to watch, we talked about Moses. Now Moses, for the last 40 years of his life, after that burning bush moment that we talked about, For the last 40 years of his life, he led the Jewish people through the desert, through the wilderness, to the promised land. Now, he didn't get to go into the promised land. That's a different sermon for a different day. He actually died before he got there. But God had a plan. That's where we pick up today. So today we're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, and we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. And we read this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses, my servant, well, he's dead. Now then you and all these people, 
okay? And when God says all these people, I think many times we sort of picture Moses walking through the desert with, you know, 75, 100 folks. According to the calculations that we see in the first five books of the Bible, we believe those numbers to be closer to around two to three million, okay? We got about two or three million Hebrews walking out in the desert, and God goes to, to, jo uh, to Joshua and says, you and those two and a half, three million people over there, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give you. He says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Famously, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we meet Joshua, okay? Joshua is a prominent general. He was a prominent general in Moses' army. He was a faithful man of God. And now the torch has been passed to him. He has put on Moses' mantle, so to speak. He is now the new Moses, and he has been tasked with leading two to three million Jews into the promised land. But there's a problem, because right? there's always a problem. The problem is that the promised land is now filled with enemy tribes. You, you see, when, when, when um, Joseph's ancestors left Israel to go into Egypt because of the famine, when they got put into slavery, they were stuck there for 400 years. And in that time, all of these neighboring tribes and people, well, they sort of took over the land. And now Joshua is tasked with going into that land and getting those people out of there. So he's tasked with doing this, and his first order of business is to take care of this city named Jericho. Now, Jericho is a major city. This is a big deal. This is, the, this is really the one city that is standing in the way of God's people entering to God's land. And, and Joshua knows this is not going to be easy, okay? This, this is not going to be an easy task. So he comes up with a plan. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shurim. All right, and he says, Go look over the land, especially Jericho. So let's stop and talk about Jericho for a second because this is really where the whole story takes place. Here is what I've been told is an accurate representation of what ancient Jericho looks like. Now, when, when these spies sort of entered into the city, they would have learned a couple of things. Number one, they learned that Jericho has not one wall but two walls, has not one gate but two gates. They learned that Jericho actually has a natural water spring in the center section there. And because of the time of the year, they had just completed harvest. And so scholars tell us that there's enough food and enough water and enough protection for Jericho to withstand an enemy siege for upwards of three years. Now, this sort of outer wall region here the, with the brown dwellings, let's talk about that for a second. This is an interesting sort of area. Now, these homes or dwellings or businesses, these were actually built up against the wall. So they would use the wall as part of their house. It would actually be a wall in their house. And in this section out here is where you would find, oh, shall we say, the houses of ill repute. All right. So the spies come into this first area, and we read that they entered into a house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. So we meet Rahab. 
um, a.k.a. Rahab the harlot, a lot of our translations will call her. So I read this, and honestly, I'm left with one question. Why would two Jewish spies, two good Jewish boys, why, why are they going into a brothel? I mean, there's a lot of buildings in that picture. What's like, I thought I saw a Chick-fil-A. It's definitely a Starbucks. What, why are they going into Rahab's brothel? So they're not looking for female companionship. Actually, what they're trying to do, we believe, is they're trying to fly under the radar. You see, if two travelers were to enter into a city, if they were to go into a brothel, it really wouldn't raise any red flags. And yet, when they infiltrated the city, they were spotted. Somebody saw them. Somebody saw, you know what, those look like Hebrews over there, and they're going into Rahab's house. And so they went, and they told the king of Jericho. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you. It's like, we're not going to go in there, but you can bring them out to us. Um, bring them out uh, who entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. It actually says that she brought them up to the roof and hid them under some flax, so some grain. She said, yes, the men, they came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. Now, I don't think we can underestimate how bold this was of Rahab. I mean, number one, she lies to her king. Number two, she hides enemy spies. And number three, and I didn't put this up here, but she basically sends these guards on a wild goose chase. She's like, yeah, I know they went over there. And if you take a right and you kind of go for a couple days over there in the forest, I think you're going to see them. I'm pretty sure that's where I saw them go. And so the guards leave. And when the coast is clear, Rahab climbs up, goes to the roof, uncovers the spies, and has a conversation with them. Here's what she says. She says, I know. I know that the Lord has given you this land. Now, stop and talk about that for a second, because it says, I know. Remember, she's a Canaanite. She, she's not an Israelite. She, she, she comes from a place with different gods. It's a completely different culture. It's, a, according to the scriptures, a wildly evil culture. I mean, there are human sacrifices going on the whole nine yards. It's not a good place. And yet she says, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. She's like, we're, we're not in a good place over here. So that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. She says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. Yeah, we got wind of that too. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it, but she keeps saying the same thing over and over. She keeps saying, we heard, we heard, we heard. And it's amazing to think that uh, different cultures and different religions, different people living far away are impacted by what God was doing out in the middle of the desert. And it makes you wonder, oh, who's watching you right now? Do you ever think about that? I mean, what person is out there watching you right now, seeing what God's doing in your life? Who right now is being influenced potentially, being impacted by how you are reacting to your situation and how God is moving in your life? So based on what she's heard, 
she makes one of the most amazing statements. She looks at these two Hebrew spies and she says, for the Lord, your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. This right here, Joshua 2.11, this is one of the most famous utterances of faith in all of scripture. This right here lands Rahab into what is called the faith hall of fame located in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. I mean, this prostitute from Jericho, who was not Jewish, based only on what she has heard, and she really hasn't heard that much, publicly declares, I believe that your God is bigger than our God. She's like, you know, in spite of everything that I've heard, where I live, what, I, what I've seen, everything that I, I've been taught, I just believe that your God is the true God. What a statement of faith. And the only thing she knows are a couple of stories. She continues. She says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will save us from death. Essentially, she says, look, I know what's coming. All right, I can see the writing on the wall. Because your God is the true God, this city's already yours. It's already yours. So when you come to destroy it, please remember me. And the spies respond. They say, our lives for your lives. That's, that's the oath they take. Our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Now, it's an interesting statement what they say here at the end. When, when the Lord gives us the land. And I don't want to read too much into it, but Rahab, the Canaanite, says that God has already given them the land. And yet here we exceed the Israelites saying, well, when he does this. More on that later. They continue. They say to her, all right, Rahab, here's the deal. We will be made free from this oath that you have made us swear. Unless, okay, unless when we come into the land, you tie this red cord, see what I did there, <laughs> to the window. You must bring your father and your mother, your brothers and all who belong to your father's household into your home. So the spies are like, look, Rahab, here's the deal. When we attack this city, whoever stays inside your house, marked by that red cord on the window, will be saved from death. But everybody on the outside of your house, they will die. It's difficult to miss the connection to Passover. Remember? Back in Egypt, God sent the angel of death through the streets, said he would kill the firstborn of every family whose house was not marked by the blood of the lamb. So she agrees. Agreed, she says. Let it be as you say. So she was confronted with the truth of God, and she responds in faith. She hangs that cord. So the spies, they carefully make their way back to Joshua. They debrief him on the city. Here's what we saw. Here are the gates. Here's the, you know, here are the walls. There's a spring, yada, yada, yada. And with this information, Joshua takes his entire army, two to three million people, and he marches right up to the gates of Jericho and stops. Joshua 6.1. Now, the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. 
let me tell you something. This was probably not a good scene inside those gates. Now, it says that they were afraid of the Israelites, but the people of Jericho, I mean, they knew. They knew that, that the, the, the Israelites couldn't get into the gates. I mean, these, this, this fortress was impregnable. But they did know what the Hebrew God was capable of. And I kind of feel like it's a scene from a movie. You know, when, when there's a, a, like a tornado barreling down and people are, are sort of hunkered down inside just waiting for the roof to be lifted off. And I just feel like every single person in that walled-off city, including Rahab, is just waiting for that Red Sea moment. What is their God going to do to us? Then the Lord said to Joshua, you see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and, and fighting men. Past tense, I have delivered, just like Rahab. Now, from Joshua's perspective, nothing's happened yet. Battle hasn't even started yet, but from God's, battle's already over. And it made me think about our prayer life. When we pray, do we have the faith to live as though that prayer is already answered? I mean, honestly. Uh, like confession time, when I pray, often, often, I am tempted to, to say, well, that's not going to happen. But what make, imagine if we began to approach our prayers with God's perspective. Imagine if we lived in a world where God has already answered the prayers that we've made. How would that change our lives? So God then gives Joshua a battle plan, and this is where it gets interesting. He says, all right, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. Your entire army, right? Your entire army is to walk around the city once a day for six days, followed by seven priests walking ahead of the ark, each carrying a trumpet made from a ram's horn. On the seventh day, are you writing this down? Okay, on the seventh day, you are to walk around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. Then when they give one long blast, all the people are to give a mighty shout and the walls of the city will fall down. Now, remember that Joshua is a veteran general, okay? He's like Norman Schwarzkopf. Remember that guy? That's a blast in the past, all right? It's like Norman Schwarzkopf. He's got a winning playbook. He knows what he's doing. He's led many, many successful raids and, and sieges. And now God's saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk around playing a flute and banging a drum. Okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. And that's the point. This is a test. God is testing them. God wants to see if you guys have enough faith to do what I'm asking you to do. Because if you do what I'm asking you to do, you will see that I'm with you. Now, often we spend a lot of time focusing on these instructions because they're just, they're interesting. They're neat. But then I kind of looked at these instructions through the filter of Rahab. And it made me wonder something. Why seven days? Right? I mean, God could have taken down that wall with one word in one day. So what's with all the shouting? What's with all the marching? Why prolong this whole thing for seven days? In my opinion, in my opinion, he was giving the people of Jericho one last chance to repent. In fact, he was giving them seven days. Scripture says something very interesting about God's character. In Psalm 85, 15, of God it says this, But you, O Lord, are God of compassion and mercy, 
slow to get angry, that's important, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. God has given this pagan culture 400 years. They've heard the stories. We know that. They know who he is. They know what he's capable of. He's given them 400 years to turn to him. And because he's slow to get angry, because he's filled with compassion, he gives them seven more days. Peter in the New Testament tells us that God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. Instead, he wants all people to turn away from their sin. I firmly believe that God doesn't really want what's about to happen to happen. I don't think God wants a, to lose a single person to sin. And I have to imagine, based on what I know about our Heavenly Father, I have to imagine that God would have honored 10,000 red cords hanging from the walls of Jericho. But that didn't happen. And on the seventh day, when the people heard the trumpet blast, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly the walls of Jericho crumbled and fell before them, and the people of Israel poured into the city from every side and captured it. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. It was a bloodbath. I mean, it was absolute carnage. The screams, dust everywhere from the walls. I mean, it had to have been an absolute nightmare. And in the midst of battle, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise, go and rescue the prostitute and everyone with her. And in the midst of the chaos, God reaches in and saves Rahab. Not because she's good, not because she deserves it, not because she recognized her sinful ways, but because she recognized that he was God. And this amazing story wraps up simply by telling us that she lives among the Israelites to this day. And I love the way this is written because it lets us know that this account was written while Rahab was still alive. And I believe that's so important because I believe that, that her life, her being with the Israelites, traveling with them wherever they went, stood as a memory marker of God's grace and mercy in the midst of law and judgment. Her life stood as a memory marker to God's judgment against a sinful city named Jericho. And her life tells us that we serve a God that is righteous and holy and will not stand for sin. And yet, at the same time, her life shows us that we serve a God who is patient and compassionate, who is slow to anger, and who looks for ways to redeem people from their past. Time goes on. Rahab at some point meets a man named Salmon. And they have a son. Who has a son? Who has a son named David? And David would go on to become the king of Israel. And 1,000 years later, in an attempt to link Jesus Christ 
to King David. The disciple Matthew documents Jesus' genealogy. And who does he include? As the 35th great-grandmother to our Lord Jesus Christ, but Rahab, the prostitute. Now, let's be honest. We probably wouldn't even invite her over to our house for dinner. And yet God invites her to be a part of the line of Jesus Christ. Now, what's so amazing about Rahab's story is that it's not so dissimilar to ours. I mean, before God showed up, Rahab had a title. She was Rahab the prostitute. In fact, Scripture says that many, many times over and over and over again. This is not a title that one would be proud of. Okay, this is most likely a profession that she fell into out of desperation. For most of her life, she was known as the prostitute or the harlot by her neighbors, by her customers, probably even by her family. And the truth is, I think each of us has a label. Some of you have just had your labels discovered and you're humiliated, you're destroyed, and that's maybe why you're here today. Some of you have done your best to sort of distance yourself from your labels, but every once in a while, someone from your past comes up and your, your label comes to the surface. Some of us, have had labels put on us because of the prison system. You did your time, but you just can't seem to escape that label. We have labels because of addictions. We have labels because of habits. We have, we, we have labels because we have secrets. We have labels because of our, our exes. And maybe, just maybe, you're somebody who believes in God. You believe in heaven. But you also believe that because of your label, that there's a disconnect between you and God. And you believe that if you could only just change your label, if you could only just scrub your past, you might be able to have a relationship with God. Now, if that's you, I want you to consider something. When the Israelite spies offered to spare Rahab, look what they said to her. Our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. There's no mention of her label. They said nothing about her lifestyle. Abandoning prostitution, that wasn't part of the deal. Changing her lifestyle, that was not discussed. Rahab simply acknowledged faith in God. And she was saved. And I just have to imagine that a thousand years later when Matthew listed Rahab the prostitute in the lineage of Jesus. And he smiled because Matthew had a label. He was Matthew, the tax collector. And, and I have to imagine that as he wrote her name, he remembered the day that he fir first met Jesus. That he was actually caught red-handed collecting taxes, which made him an outcast in his society. And that day when he met Jesus for the very first time, Jesus looked at him right in the eyes. And he didn't say, once you quit, follow me. He didn't say, once you lay this down and promise never to do it again, you, come, follow me. He didn't say, Matthew, once you change your label, once you get a new reputation, come find me and we'll talk. No. 
Jesus looked at him without judgment and said, Matthew, I want you, labels and all, to follow me. You see, when we focus on the battle of Jericho, we tend to focus on how the wall was an obstacle that God could overcome. But the amazing part of this story is that Rahab's label was not an obstacle for God. And neither is yours. Which is so encouraging because so many of us believe that if we were to go to God just as we are, a mess, whatever's going on in your life, so many of us believe that he will punish us for our label. Heck, some of us have been told that. But the message of Jesus Christ, the many times great-grandson of Rahab the prostitute, lets us know that God wants to deliver us from our labels and give us a new one, forgiven, accepted, and loved. So, what's practical? What do you do with a message like this? Every single week here at DHC, we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So I want to speak to a particular group out there, and you're going to know who you are when I talk to you. But I just have one question that I want you to think about today, and it's this. What's your label? What's that part of you that has caused you to shy away from God? What's that thing in your past? What's that thing in your current situation that when you think about that thing, it makes you believe that God wants no part of you? And the story of Rahab, the message of Jesus Christ, it tells us that every single one of us, while still wearing our label, has been invited into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how big your mess is, no matter how embarrassing or painful your label might be, our God is willing and able to rescue you if you just turn to Him. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that we had the opportunity to come here today to talk about one of the greatest battles in the history of mankind, Lord, where you showed your power. God, but the most encouraging part, Lord, is how you showed your compassion. Lord, where you prove to us that you care about us in the midst of what we're going through, all of the mess, Lord, you are not afraid of our mess and you invite us into a relationship, God. And I pray that today, if there is someone watching or someone listening who believes that they are too far away from you, too far gone, their label is too disgusting, that, 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 that society has pushed them away, that they have done something they could never be forgiven of, I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ that they would come to know you today that they would hang that red cord on their window saying, I believe that you are the true God, Lord, and by that act of faith, Lord, that you would save them. That they would know that by faith, Jesus Christ has washed their sins and they have been given a new label, forgiven, 
Thank you, Lord, for the story of Joshua. Thank you, God, for the memory marker of Rahab. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.